you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Yes, we're still there. Finishing up chapter 5 today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, looking at verses 17 through 25. God's way to godly leaders. There's lots of confusion about there when we start talking about elders and overseers and deacons and all. There's a lot of confusion out there, and I think man has gotten a hold of that particular structure and kind of warped it. So we're going to talk about that this morning, a little bit about what God intends for his leaders to be and do and how we can administrate them. Let me read the passage to you, and then we'll talk about it. 1 Timothy 5, starting with verse 17. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this instruction, and I thank you for the fact that it is based on your son, Jesus Christ. His salvation in our hearts changes that, changes our hearts and changes our perspective, changes the way we live our life. And I pray, God, that these words will permeate our hearts and our minds and give us a fresh and new view of how you want your church structured and how you want us to administrate that structure. We love you, Father. We want to follow you and obey you. So teach us this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As I've shared before, we are going to pursue the idea of elders in this church at some point in the future. And so one question when, when I talk about this with people, not just you, but other people, but one question that keeps coming up is, who's in charge? Everybody wants to know who's in charge. If you have a council of elders, who's in charge? And we're going to try to answer that. But Paul gives Timothy really some, some guidance here from God that tears down that question, kind of breaks it down and, and gets rid of it, really, in a sense. And I'll explain that as we go. Because we all know God's in charge, okay? That's who's in charge. And I know that's a church answer. That's the, that's the Sunday school answer, but it's the truth. And we're going to see that this morning because God gives us some clear instructions. And we need to do this his way, not our way. So Paul's letter to Timothy, as I've explained before, and it's a, t- a letter to us as well because Timothy read this letter to the church and it's being read to you. This letter gives some explicit words on how churches ought to function, how we ought to handle ministry, leadership, the practices of church. And so far, he's addressed leaders, he's, ad- he's addressed teachers, he's addressed pastors, he's addressed false teachers, he's addressed heresy that's in the church, he's addressed a lot of things so far up to chapter 5. Widows, how we're going to maintain and, and take care of widows in the church. And now, he's going to explain the man- mindset and the methods of establishing a godly leadership and a godly leadership team of elders in, in the church. But this doesn't work unless we follow God's word. 
This doesn't work. If we've got any kind of man-made idea about it, any kind of ideas of our own, it won't work. We've got to follow what Scripture says. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. God gives Timothy instructions on how to administrate the office of elder, or the other word we use is overseer, or the other word we use is pastor. All of them are synonyms. I know there's a lot of synonyms for one position or one job, but that's what the Bible uses, so we're going to use them. You'll hear me say them interchangeably all morning. God expects us to conduct oversight of our leaders according to these principles that he's here. What, what principles are that? What guidance does God give us on how to handle and deal with and set up a council of elders? Well, God gives very specific principles in three areas of elder administration. And the first one is how to honor elders. So now I get to talk about my pay. No, I'm just kidding. Verses 17 and 18. Let's read those again. The elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. So from this passage, you'll see that some people may want to create two classes of elders, the ruling elders and the teaching elders. That's not what Paul's doing, okay? There's elders is... They're all equal. They're all even. And so they have equal voice and equal responsibilities. They have different gifts. They have different abilities, but they're all equal in how they lead. There's no bi-level of hierarchy of elders, okay? And, and that's something we've got to start with in our own hearts and minds is that this isn't about hierarchy and leadership ruling over things. It's about a, a group of lay pastors helping each other minister God's word. So God calls every one of them to the same exact duty, shepherd the flock. That's the responsibility of an elder, any elder. Whether you have a whole bunch of them, whether you have two of them or three of them, shepherd the flock. That's the responsibility that's there. So preaching elders, are they're the ones that maybe have especially spent some time digging deeper into God's word. Maybe they had a chance at some education. Maybe they had a chance to learn scripture, maybe. Maybe like Paul, they were raised in the Jewish culture and knew the Old Testament pretty good, which by the way, that was their Bible at that time. So the preaching elders, they've maybe spent, but like I said, God gives every one of us different abilities, different spiritual gifts that we can use in the church, and the elders are the same way. Some will lead by preaching and teaching. Others may lead by administrating, managing, or guiding with spiritual wisdom all the functions of the church. So there's no one's better than the other, all right? So those who are, are going to preach and teach, God says they're crucial to the church's health, he, he, that's why Paul kind of singles them out a little bit. But God says that. Back in Acts 6, if you remember, when they appointed the first set of, of deacons and leaders in the church to handle the widow problem that was going on in, in Jerusalem, the apostles said it very clearly. We don't need to be distracted from the ministry of the word and prayer. And so there's, there's di dividing up the duties, if you will. But they're all important. These guys may have worked hard at scholarship. They may have spent some time, really some serious energy, getting to know God's word better. And that's fine. That's what God gifted them with. And so then he says something that probably scares most church finance people. Double honor. Well, does that mean two times the pay? <laughs> no, it does not mean that. Um, it's not really talking about pay. It goes back to De Deuteronomy 21.7 when he was talking about the priest receiving their subsistence and the respect and honor that they deserve as priests of the Lord's house, the tabernacle. And so that's the thing he's really talking about. Now, obviously, we've all got to live and we've all got to have provisions. And the, and the Levite priests in the tabernacle and the temple, they were supported by the offerings and the gifts of the people. 
So double honor doesn't mean you got to double my pay next year, okay? That's not what this is saying at all. So don't go out of here screaming that. The pastor didn't do that. Now, one of the questions I had when I read this and have read this many times is why is Paul having to actually spell this out to honor your elders? Well, I think one of the reasons is because elders was a new office. Now, there had been elders that supported and helped Moses, but in terms of the church and the, and the work of the function of the, of the church, elders was kind of a new thing. And so Paul's kind of explaining that and, and helping them understand that they replaced the priests. Everybody's used to a priest. No matter what religion you're in, there's always someone in that religion usually called a priest in some sort or fashion. And so Paul's kind of like, okay, get away from your pagan religions and your Judaism and realize there are no more priests. Actually, we're the priests. We're the royal priesthood. All of us have the gift of being a priest of Christ. So there's not these, these head guys anymore. There's elders. And he, he said that they really just need some compensation. They need some help to live. And we'll talk specifically about that in a moment. But Paul wanted them to understand that, that elders needed a little help and obviously a little support. The scriptures quoted that are quoted here don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out grain. No, Paul's not worried about an ox, okay? Um, he's worried about people getting subsistence. They need, people need food, people need provisions, okay? And so the, the two scriptures, the other one is actually a quote Jesus said in Luke 10, 7, the worker is worth his wages. So it implies a little bit of on compensation of some sort. Matter of fact, Luke's, I mean, Jesus, the quote that he gets for, uh, for, gives for Jesus here, it's one of seven passages in scripture about elder wages. So all elders, that's the next question most people ask when we start setting up a council of, are all elders paid? No. No, that's not the goal either. All elders are not paid, so the, bank, the church won't go bankrupt. That's not what God says here. All elders are honored, respected, and supported, given whatever they need to to do their ministry, given that freedom and that reign. I want you to turn over to Hebrews. Hebrews, go to James and take a left if you don't know exactly where that is. Hebrews 13 as the, as the writer, the preacher of Hebrews finishes up, he's really talking about some final exhortations of them. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, he gives some clear instruction on the people that are overseeing the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Listen to what the writer says. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. And then if you drop down to verse 17 of that same chapter, he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they keep watch over your souls, as those who will give an account so that you can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. You may not have known that, but all of us who are called to this particular position of, of leadership, whether you're a preaching and teaching elder or whether you're just an elder serving another, some other capacity, we're called to watch over your souls. And, and it's a big responsibility, and we'll be held accountable for it. I'll, I will be asked by God, which is why I didn't really want this job. <laughs> you, you don't volunteer for this job. Me and Peter were talking about it last night. This is a calling. It's good to aspire to this, but if you're not called, you'll f flame out eventually. But Hebrews is very clear that we need to realize that the elders deserve, they deserve consideration, they deserve support, they deserve prayers, and maybe even some aid in some sense. So pastors or elders or overseers, whatever word you want to use in there, they all need the support and prayers of their flock. 
and they need to be honored as the Lord leads. If you want some other passages, I'm going to get them to you. You can write them down. Here's some other passages that you can look at in terms of this idea of how to support elders. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. You can pretty much read that entire chapter because it's about being supported and, and helped by the church. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.12 is another one. And so the Bible's pretty clear to help elders and honor them by supporting them. I mean, have any of you ever had a job that you felt unappreciated at? Ever did a task repeatedly and no one ever said thank you? That's what Paul's getting at really here. Be grateful for what your elders are doing for you. Some people may think that a pastor should serve without any kind of accolades. He's, you know, why does he need a pat on the back? I don't need a pat on the back, by the way. But why does he need any help? Well, because we're human too. We need gratitude as well. But God says we don't have to expect that of the pastor. We don't have to expect him to just go out there and exist on nothing. Now, there's some debates that have come out of this two verses, a lot of them, uh, about different things. First one is a paid pastor versus an unpaid pastor. There has been some talk in years past, centuries past, the pastor shouldn't be paid. He should just do it out of the goodness of his heart. So he has to come up with some other form of income of some sort. Um, pastors who rule well, it says, they work hard, bring truth to the church. Most of us would do it if we had to without pay. But we got to eat. I got to eat. I like eating. We got to support our families. So God wants us to earn a living, which is another thing of obeying God. God wants you to work. See, work was in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't it didn't, it didn't happen because of the curse. It just got harder because of the curse. So working is fine. All humans are called to work by God. So the pastors are no exceptions, and their families need the care. And if you want full-time shepherding, you have to provide money for full-time shepherding. And then there's the idea of a bivocational pastor. There's a lot of debate about that. But he can shepherd, and he can work a secular job, and he can support his family, and there's nothing wrong with that. Matter of fact, it may be the wave of the future because insurance is expensive and other things that you would need to provide for a full-time pastor um, in most cases are expensive. So bivocational might be the way to go. There's another way you can honor a pastor. Manage your expectations for what the pastor's doing. I, I don't have any fear of that here. There's, I'm not, this is not a personal testimony of any kind. You guys are great, Really? But I know a lot of my fellow pastors have a lot of expectations on them that are beyond what they can do. Even if they had 28 hours a day, they couldn't do these things. So don't, ever, don't overexpect for your, your pastors. The second debate that kind of goes on is, should men seek to be a vocational elder? Should this be a profession they pursue? I think, it, I think it's warranted. I think scripture allows for this. But like I said a minute ago, the, can the church afford that? Can a church afford to pay a, a young man with a family and children, all the insurance and all the stuff that goes along with that adequately? Can they do that? That's tough. A church should not seek status from whether they have a full-time pastor or not, okay? There really shouldn't be a status thing. You know, if you can afford one, great. If you're not, that's fine. It's not a status thing. You're not a lesser church because you can't afford a full-time pastor. But each church has to decide how they want to honor their elders. It, it's, it's not God directing exactly how, but he says honor them. He gives us that, that marching order. God calls any elder to serve him, paid or not. 
it is a task of self-denial. And uh, we know that, those of us who have accepted the call. Now, the, the, the third debate from this is who's in charge? I told you I was going to get to that question. Well, I told you who's in charge. God is, okay? God's in charge. And what we have to understand, and this is as, as Baptists, we believe in a congregationally governed church. So the congregation technically is in charge. But who's going to lead them? The elders. Who's in charge of the elders then? Whoever they decide. It's up to them. But don't think of it as a CEO or chairman of the board kind of leadership. It is a mutually supporting leadership. It could be the guy you're paying, but it doesn't have to be. It could be the guy with the most schooling. Probably shouldn't be. <laughs> Sometimes we get a little wrapped up in our schooling. But remember the abilities I talked about? Every pastor, has, every elder would have different abilities. Some may be great pastors and preachers, but they may not be very good at kind of guiding and directing and leading a group of men. So it's up to, the, up to the, I think, the elders in the church to decide, you know, who's going to kind of be the, the guy representing is a better word probably than leading the elders. God leaves the leader, el, lead elder job open for any church to decide. It's not something he's dictating necessarily. But remember, that lead guy, whoever he is, and that group of elders, whoever they are, it is not an absolute dictatorial leadership the church is congregationally governed. And the church needs to be making the decisions. And the elders bring you decisions. And they bring you the vision that God may have given them. And you discuss it. And it's meant to be a mutual sharing, a, 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 a fellowshipping kind of leadership and a kind of government that the church is supposed to be set up under. If you select the right men, if we select the right men, you won't have to worry about that. I assure you, you won't have to worry about that if you select the right man, which we're going to get to that at the end. Just honor those you do select. See, only God's way works, and he tells us, honor your elders. That's the first thing he says. Now, the, the next is that what happens when an elder loses the privilege of being an elder? What happens when an elder, pastor, overseer sins? Well, we got guidance for that. Verses 19 through 21, let me read that for you. Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will be afraid. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice. Do nothing out of favoritism. Don't allow unfounded accusations. Having two witnesses has been around since the Old Testament. Moses instituted that. Two witnesses that testify, not in collaboration, not in the same, wit not in the same room. They do it separately. You, you, that way you get to compare their stories. You isolate the witnesses against anyone and you check their stories to ensure that the accusations are grounded. That's the way we should handle any accusations. Not just against elders, but any. That's proper. That's by, that's by God's instruction. Now, if the accusations are true, if they're found to be grounded, then there needs to be a rebuking, a church discipline action. Rebuke the sin of elder, elders. You can also rebuke those who false, falsely accused if it turns out to be that. We need to, those kind of public sins inside the church need to be rebuked publicly. 
It is, it is what God is telling us to do. Let public sin be exposed to the church and rebuked. Paul is just applying what Jesus had directed in Matthew chapter 18 about when you take the church to them, when you go to the person that's sinning in the, and with, with some of the elders from the church and then you bring it before the church, that's a public rebuke. And hopefully the person responds well. See, de- deterrence and restoration is the goal with any of this, okay? Sin is, sin is not to be flirted with, not to be toyed with, but it is also always to be sought to be forgiven. And it's always sought to, to restore the, the sinner. That's the way Jesus did it. That's the way we want to do it. We need them to have a fear of God, not of his wrath for sin, but his glory, his grace, his mercy for those who do sin. That's the point of rebuking someone publicly. And Timothy is charged, boy, is he charged, charged to be unbiased, non-preferential, not impartial at all to anyone and to any accusation. Even if he, if he believes in, in his mind that the person is innocent, he still has, if he's got two witnesses, got to respond, got to work it out using the steps of church dis- discipline in Matthew 18. See, this is, I, want, I want you to see the divine importance Paul puts on this particularly of not having partiality. He says, I charge you by God, Jesus Christ, and the angels, all who are watching this situation, don't have any favoritism. Holy and redemptive discipline only comes from God's hands. He plays no favorites. God doesn't play favorites. We don't need to play favorites. So no personality issues should enter in. No favors. You know, well, you did this for me, I'm going to do this for you. Nope, that shouldn't happen. There's no nepotism in Christ's church. All of us are called to be fair, just, and righteous in dealing with sin and especially sin in the elders of the church. Because elders are not absolved of accountability. Because we're not infallible. Elders are not infallible. If you expect them to be, it's going to be very difficult for you. But we need to hold them accountable God's way. And that's what he just gave us there. Old Testament law, like I said, has always used the criteria of three witnesses. And in, in Deuteronomy 13, 11, it says there even to publicly rebuke people who have sinned. So there's nothing new here in in Scripture. Paul is not introducing new concepts here. These have been here. Unfortunately, I don't don't know that a lot of churches are willing to make that kind of thing. But if you want a a holy, righteous, pure church and council of elders, you've got to be willing to do these things. You've got to have the courage to do these things. I mean, we've all witnessed an undisciplined child, right? I'm not talking a, a child who's a little silly and doing the normal stuff. We're talking one that's belligerent. Not good, right? You've seen it. You've seen it. If you've been to Walmart, you've seen it. It's there. It's not good. We got to be disciplined. We got to be willing to discipline. The Bible's pretty clear on a couple of things about this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. And the other thing is, He despises those who acquit the guilty. There's no sweeping anything under the rug in God's eyes. It needs to be dealt with. Scripture is very clear on that. There's, you go through the Proverbs, you see that both of those several times. He opposes the proud. He despises those who set the guilty free. God wants all believers' sin to be dealt with. He does. He wants all of our sin to be dealt with, especially our public sin. 
He wants it to be called out for the church for the purpose of holiness, reputation, and service. We've got to be above reproach as a church, too, to be that light and salt out in the world, to be the one who they see our good works and glorify our Father. We need to be unstained. We don't need to be perfect, but we need to be making sure we're not publicly sinning in front of the world. And this kind of thing, discipline in the church, whether it's with elders or with a church member, all of these, we need to realize, starts with the fact that all believers are under the Holy Spirit. We're under the supervision of the Holy Spirit. And we're under the supervision of the church. That's a fact we have to start with. When we start thinking about discipline, you get a little squirmy in your chair, and you get a little uncomfortable, go back to that fact. The Holy Spirit and God Almighty has called us to be under that supervision and to do this. So dealing with public or egregious sin is, is just part of church life. And it's by God's direction. You go, to, you go to Matthew 18, there's three steps. The first step is talking to them. So, and sometimes that's a long conversation over several weeks, months, maybe even years, depending on what's going on. But the accusations we know for a fact can get out of hand. Today, one tweet on Twitter, and someone's reputation is ruined, even though it may not be true. There's all kinds of stuff out there. They, they, they take one witness, and even that witness is questionable. So accusations can get out of hands. We must be diligent, persistent, and courageous when we're doing this. We've got to stay after it until we're sure or we've proved it false. Because the perceptions out there, they will become reality eventually if you don't start trying to handle them. When we don't really ask the right questions, or we're afraid to go talk to that person. So we've got to be careful and we've got to be diligent. And I want you to remember this. The goal of any discipline in God's church, the goal is always, always, always restoration. Restoration of that person by confession, repentance, and recompense if necessary. And you know what? Those are things we're supposed to do. That's faithfulness to God when we do those things. When we move people toward confession, repentance, and recompense, we help them understand that there is a Savior who loves them and died for them, and forgiveness is real, and we all need it. We're, we're not doing anybody any favors by ignoring sin. So a public, a public rebuke might sound harsh, over the top. It may even sound mean to you. But it's not done the way it was done on the schoolyard, okay? That's not how it would, would take place. When it's done compassionately, with grace, it redeems. Oh, does it redeem. And I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen a former elder who came out of a homosexual affair privately, confessed it, repented, and he's still at the same church. He's not serving as an elder, but he is redeemed. He's at peace with God. And the church loves him. And it's amazing. It's amazing when you see that happen, when it's done correctly. We want believers to fear God in reverent obedience. And sometimes that may require discipline them. We don't want them to be just afraid of God's wrath. That's, that's not why Jesus came. He came to, to save, he said. So those who will administer the discipline must be also without bias. We must not be having any kind of preconceived verdicts in our minds, Okay. We must be impartial. We have to be. Scripture is very clear on that. And God really hates people that aren't impartial. God truly despises any preferential or even vengeful motives. 
You may think you're being righteously indignant toward them and I'm, I'm on God's side. Well, God doesn't want you to have any kind of bias that way. He wants you to be completely free of that when you approach the, the situation. So dealing with the sin of an elder is not pretty. It's not pleasant. It's not painless. It hurts. And having been close to that one I was telling you about, it's tough. But it's very necessary because it honors God. It glorifies God. He sent his son to be glorified. So redemption is glorifying God. So he tells us to honor the good ones and discipline the bad ones. That's what he tells us about elders. The third thing he tells us, the third area he wants us to talk about is how to avoid the bad and find the good. And he tells us how to do that right here in verses 22 through 25. Let me read those again to you. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Some people's sins are obvious, preceding them to judgment. But the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Paul tells Timothy here, and it is very clear when you read this passage, these verses, be patient, slow down. You don't have to get in a hurry when you're talking about finding elders. Wait on God's timing. Be very slow to ordain, is what he's talking about there in verse 22. Be slow to ordain. Don't just say, when someone pops up and says, I want to be a preacher. Okay, let's ordain him. No, slow down, slow down. Hold the fort. See, because if the church ordains them too soon, and then they find out that the person has got a sinful life that's public, they're complicit in condoning that sin. And that's not a good place for a church to be. We want to we get rid of sin. We want to be sanctified. Condoning sin is what God's trying to prevent here. So elders can be pure and innocent. So we don't have to discipline. And we can honor them. You know, that's, that's the ultimate goal with the way God's called us to select. See, because elders are called to pursue holiness. We're called to that. We're all called to that, by the way. To be above reproach. Free from guilt. We're called to this. But, see, God wants that purity preserved by taking time with selection of the elders, the overseers or the pastors, to be very careful. He wants us to take time. So there's no time limit on this. There's no deadline. We need to hear the fact that God is telling us to be very patient. In verse 23, Paul gives Timothy some personal advice on, on self-care. Back then, wine would aid with certain illnesses of the stomach because it killed the bacteria that there was causing the problems. And Paul also knew that the pressure, stress, and burden of this church's waywardness at times would impact Timothy's health. He knew that. So he's wanting to give Timothy the permission, basically, to handle these physical maladies he's having with a little bit of cure and preventative. So a little wine is okay. Suffering for Christ does not mean ignoring sound medical advice, okay? There, there is no room for that. And I know we have a lot of medical advice out there, a lot of medical advice. But taking the sound medical advice doesn't mean, it's not something you have to do to be an elder. But then we get to verses 24 and 25. And here are the, the, the solid principles to apply in many situations in church life. Take your time. 
First of all, sin. It will be obvious in most cases of someone's public sin. It'll be obvious. And it'll pronounce judgment on that person before you even have, have an issue. That name may come up and you go, mm, no, not even going to consider it because I know where their life is. So Paul's telling them this because it means, one, don't allow them to hold office. And two, you need to even confront them with discipline because it's so obvious. That makes that, that part's easy. If you see someone in, in some public sin, treat them like a church member and go through that discipline process, but don't put them in an office. Now, some sin is not so obvious at beginning, at the onset. Some sin is not obvious, but in time, those sins will reveal themselves. You know why? Sin always likes attention. Sin always wants to, everybody to see it. Sin loves the limelight. So it will come out. It will come out. Second, he talks about good works in the same manner. Deeds that honor Christ, glorify God, and serve eternity will be seen too. Some of them may not be seen right away, but in time they'll reveal themselves, not out of the limelight or seeking or, or whatever, the attention, but just because God wants us to see them, especially if we're considering someone for the office of elder. I think God will bring them out. I've seen him do it. Elders are called as officers of God's church to seek to do good for the sake of Christ and avoid sin for the same reason, the sake of Christ. That's what we're called to do. Elders are called to do that, to, to serve as officers of the church, to do good for the sake of Christ and to resist sin for the same reason. So we test them. Paul told us in chapter 3, verse 10, he said, test them to make sure they are worthy to be put in these offices. And I would say, train them, give lessons to them. I mean, that's why we took a year and a half or almost with Jeremy before we ordained him. To give him some, some just basic lessons, because there's still stuff we're learning, right, Jeremy? <laughs> Every day. But we're, we want them to be ready and prepared as we can make them to be the humble overseer that God wants them to be. That's the goal. So God gives us one really clear instructions on how to select elders. Patience. I know, that's, that's a... That's a four-letter word for some of us. Patience. Ugh. Wait. Wait. Time is always on God's side. Always. Always on God's side. You remember the verse that your parents used to use? Maybe you may not even know it's a verse in the Bible. But your parents probably used this many times on you when they especially had caught you where you had done something wrong and thought you had gotten away with it. But if you will not do so, repent. Behold, you have sinned against the Lord and... Be sure your sin will find you out. I don't know if you knew that was a Bible verse, Numbers 32, 23. It's there. Your sins will find you out. I told my kids, I said, God's on parents' side. That's how can we find out things without even trying. If we're praying, God wants it. And, and God's applying it right here in this situation with the elders. Sin will be revealed. We don't get away with anything. Now, your grandmother might have said this, and you may have said it. Haste makes waste. Don't get in a hurry. We're always in such a hurry, especially these days. But time, listen to this, time is not our enemy. It's our ally because God's in charge of it. See, God doesn't own a wristwatch or a calendar. So he's not governed by the TikToks and the sun setting and all that kind of stuff. It's on his, it's his hands, and so it's always an ally to God's work. Time is not our enemy. 
So let me help apply some of this passage a little bit more. In, in verse 23, I'm going to go to verse 23 first because everybody's probably sitting there going, what is he, what is he going to say about a little bit of wine? Okay, so let me tell you. I kind of told you already, but Paul's addressing some physical issues that Timothy has with some sound advice. Drink a little wine. It's documented that, it's documented that God, uh, wine, little, a little wine would help certain ailments. Very well documented. Paul may have gotten this advice from Luke the physician. I don't know. But, but God wants believers to care for their physical bodies. It's not just a fad out there. It's God wants us to care for our physical bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. God wants us to take care of our bodies and honor God by doing that. So medicine, preventatives, good eating habits. I know, I'm not even going to go there yet. Uh, we're not preaching on gluttony today. Good eating habits and healthy choices. Those are the things that we can do. Our faith doesn't depend on this. Okay, this is not affecting your salvation. So don't run out of here saying that the, God, the pastor said, if I'm fat, I'm, I'm not going to heaven. That's not what I said. Our faith doesn't depend on these, but our quality of service to God just might. You might not be able to do certain things he wants you to do because you're not healthy enough. I mean, old age and taken into account in this, okay? So it happens. But be good to your health. That's, that's what Paul's saying here to us. To Timothy, he's very specific. But I think to us, he's saying, be good to your health. Do what you can to make yourself healthier. Now let's get on with the rest of it, applying it. Verse 22, 24, and 25. Hasty ordination, I said that. I have seen it make many people pastors and churches wind up being complicit in their sins. And it just is hard on the church. Terrible. Um, leaves a lot of stain. I mean, we love to see young men step up and say, I want to be a pastor. I want to go into full-time ministry of the gospel. We love that. But if we get too fast and too hasty, we can, we can leave some serious errors. God wants men who will last and stand faithful to be his overseers to the end. It's a lifetime call, really, in some form or fashion. Peter was sharing with me a guy that's, that's how old is he now, 80-something? And he's still teaching Bible at their church in South Africa. He's a, he was a professor at a university, but now he's still teaching. You never really retire from God's word. It's meant to last a lifetime. So God seeks men who have forsaken sin, chosen to reject sinful behaviors, and confessing their sin quickly. If, they, if they've done something wrong, they don't try to hide it. They try to deal with it with repentance, confession, looking for forgiveness. And as a church, we need to give men time to reveal their hearts to us as we're thinking through selecting an elder. We don't, let, we don't need to just let their words tell us, hey, I want to be an elder, I want to be a pastor. We need their actions to support that. And if we act too soon, we wind up condoning their sins, and then we face some tough situations to address it later. We must wait. We must wait. We can affirm their desire. They come, First uh, Timothy 3, 1, he says, it's a, it's a noble task if they want to pursue this. But then you have all those qualifications to meet, and I believe we need to begin training for that before we lay hands on them and ordain them. We, we must build in time, we must build time into the system to so that we can give their hearts time to reveal themselves. There's many of them, and I've, I, I went to an internship and seminary with one of them that thought he wanted to be a preacher, thought he wanted to be a pastor. And in the course of that internship, God laid on his heart to be a school teacher. So he's coaching football and teaching school at a Christian school. That's great. 
Sometimes we just need a little of, of exposure like that. Now, we can consider past actions. That doesn't mean you, don't, you can't consider what they've been doing in the past in terms of good works. But you also need to look at the present and the future. Because there are many pastors out there who looked real good on paper. Real good. I mean, they, they, they look real good on paper. They said, we're, you know, you would think they were holy and perfect and they'd been, God had born them for this. And then something comes up. I mean, even their past was clear, but now they're disqualified because of some of the things they did as a pastor. There are not many automatic disqualifying sins out there for a pastor. All can be forgiven, even if, they, even if the one or two do disqualify you. But there's some, but not very many. Some sins, though, need to give us a pause when we're considering someone for elder. Take some time to investigate, learn the circumstances, and then kind of decide. Again, don't get in a hurry. Don't get in a hurry at all. Even good deeds with wrong motives can be a, kind of a, a disqualifying thing. You know, if you're doing it for show, stop. Do it before the Lord, but don't... Don't do it for show. God says how good a deed is going to be, and he gets to judge that. So in my heart, I plan for us to seek elders and lay pastors and, and overseers in this manner. This is the way I want to seek them out, patiently and carefully, without haste. And I, and I call you to do the same thing. Begin now praying for this process. It's probably a year or more out before we actually get there. But just pray for that now because we need to bathe it in prayer. It, it needs God's hand. It's got his word on, but we need his hand in it. As believers, our, our responsibility is to watch and engage people that may be considered. And You know, sins will seek attention, like I said earlier. Sins will try to expose themselves, and in time we'll find out. And good works may not seek it, but sometimes God wants them to see it. But the big factor here is he wants us to remain pure. He wants men that is pure. Purity is the trait that he's looking for. A heart that's constantly seeking to follow Christ. And when we, when we step on our, our foot and when we stumble, we go to God and confess. We repent. And if it's a public sin, we bring it to the elders and we bring it to the church. Purity means not hiding that. And it takes time to see all of that. So Paul's clear. God's clear. Take time. Don't be in a hurry. So I'm going to return to our question as I finish this up and summarize it. What guidance does God give us regarding elders? Well, he gives us, he tells us to honor them, he tells us to discipline them, and he tells us how to select them. And he covers all angles of, of having elders. So if we have a question when we start moving into this, we go back to that passage. And we go back to the elders' passages in chapter 3 in Titus 1. And God will give us the answers we need. See, God's way to godly leaders leaves nothing to chance because we're trusting God. And God leaves nothing to chance. But it does require us to be patient and persistent with our prayers and our faithfulness. And we can't expect these guidelines to work if we keep shortcutting them. And I think a lot of churches have done that. I think a lot of people have gotten in a hurry and they've, they've short-circuited the process. So, as I've said already, wait. We will wait. We will wait on God. We will wait for his time. We, we wait with prayerful hearts, diligent hands. We don't change anything we're doing right now. We keep serving the Lord. Faithful allegiance to him. Because God knows what we want. God knows what his word says, because he wrote it. So we can trust him on this, and we can wait for it. 
So let's pray. This is our time of our, our pastoral prayer here where we'll take some time to pray and pray that we will trust God in this, that nobody will get in a hurry and we'll just use the right processes. So time of silent prayer, if you want to come to the front and pray at the, at the altar, that's great. If not, we'll pray silently for a few minutes and then I'll close this. Let's pray.